Welcome to episode 4 of season 11 of Delving Into Dance. This episode is with Deviate founder Lloyd Newsom. After 30 years, Deviate was put on hold as Lloyd took a step back to reflect on his work and his place within the world. In 2020, Lloyd is returning with Enter Achilles, the first remount of one of his seminal works exploring issues around masculinity, men and violence. We started by talking about his move from Australia to the UK. I was dancing with a company called One Extra Dance Theatre that was run by Keitai Chan and he had wanted to perform in London. So he brought the company over to London. Uh, they gave us some money towards flights and probably about 15 of us turned up. Uh, it wasn't the most organised, uh, well, it wasn't even a tour. It was performing at the Place Theatre. So we had to hang around for quite a bit. And then eventually we did the program we'd been doing in Australia there. And I decided because I had gone to Melbourne University and studied psychology and social work there, and I had done classes in contemporary dance and then I'd gone across to New Zealand and worked for sort of a year with um, New Zealand. The New Zealand uh, Ballet were doing a joint tour with Impulse and I was part of Impulse Dance Theatre. And I, it made me very aware working alongside a ballet company that I needed to do extra training because I'd not had any formal training as such. I'd worked with Margaret Lasker as part of the Modern Dance Ensemble. So when I got to London, I thought, well, actually, why don't I just do a solid year to fill in the gaps? Because I, you know, during the four years I was at university, I'd done a lot of dance classes. And I then applied for a scholarship. Uh, well, I auditioned for the London School of Contemporary Dance and they gave me a scholarship for a year. And that was great. And midway, Nurse Cunningham and uh, Cage were doing a two week residency and I got selected for that. And a woman called Emily Clade, who was running a company called Extemporary Dance Theatre, which was really a repertory company that did lots of uh, emerging choreographers. They were the first company to do a Michael Clark piece, uh, Carol, uh, in outside his own company, that is. Uh, they did work of Carol Armitage, David Gordon, Ian Spink. So it was a great uh, opportunity for me to just be exposed to all sorts of different approaches, choreographic approaches. And I did that for four years in the UK. And then, I, of course, I formed uh, Deviate Physical Theatre and um, 30 years later, I put it on hold because 30 years felt enough time to devote oneself to um, one company. Yeah, in terms of putting DVA on hold, I guess there was a particular point in that 30th anniversary. What was it that felt that you had done enough or that it was tiring or what, what was it that made you put it on hold? Well, I think as you approach 60, um, it focuses the mind and you, and I start asking myself, is this how I want to, you know, carry on with the rest of my life? And Deviate had a very small office team. Fundamentally, there were three people in the office plus myself. Um, and I'm currently making, uh, remounting Andrew Achilles on uh, Rombe Dance Company. Rombe has in the office about 25 people, yet Deviate, got larger audiences than Rombe did, did per project. So you can imagine the pressure on three people in the office plus myself to realize audiences that were greater than Rombe considering their backup. So 
I mean, basically, they're, you know, near on 10 times the staff we did. And the toll of that is pretty huge. And when you, you know, you find yourself in projects, getting in the office at eight in the morning and leaving at nine at night, and you're lucky if you've had 15 minutes or half an hour break for the whole day, there is a certain point when you go, maybe there's a bit more to life than uh, work. And so, yeah, come the 30th anniversary, the last couple of years, I think, with... Um, deviate were very tough in the sense that I had, you know, somebody once, when I sort of said, look, we really need more staff to, to my team, somebody said, well, you've always worked like this. And I went, well, there's a thing called accumulation um, and aging. Um, I hate to break it to you, but I'm not sure that I'm going to carry, be able to carry on with this level of energy. Um, and what was great is that I and my partner went to Australia at the beginning of 2016 and we initially thought we'll just go there for nine months. We'll see how it goes. And if I feel refreshed and I want to go back to uh, running Deviate uh, or we want to go back to the UK. But we had a great time in Australia and I really enjoyed uh, not working. I spent the, uh, probably six of those months in 2016. You know, at one point I had a bit of a sort of identity crisis. Who am I if I'm not working? And ran around teaching in sort of some institutions, but I very quickly um, let that go because uh, it didn't take much to work out who I was and how much I liked reconnecting with my family. My parents are still alive and having more time with my partner and friends and joining a book group and exercising regularly, all things that I had neglected for decades. So that's how things were. And then Helen Shute from Rombear approached me if I'd be interested in remounting a work called Strange Fish. And uh, we'd tried at one point to recast that work. And generally I don't have a rep. We make a work and then we don't redo it again. And we couldn't find people that were as good as the original. I thought there's no point in doing it unless it's better than it was originally. So uh, we didn't do it. So Consequently, when Helen approached me, I went, well, I'm not going to touch Strange Fish. We've tried that one. But I think Enter Achilles is an interesting work. And she liked Enter Achilles. And in fact, one of her dancers in her company uh, had joined, uh, had started dancing because he'd seen Enter Achilles. Uh, and strange enough, uh, Helen Shute had seen Strange Fish, which made her join uh, or get involved in dance and start dance training. So. There was a bit of a history there and um, subsequently I'm now in the middle of um, production weeks with Enter Achilles for Rombe. What is it like returning to a work that you created? It was in 1995, yeah, your first season, is that right? Yes, it was first made in 1995. Um, before I actually agreed to do it, I did say to Helen, I want to do some research to see if the themes are still relevant. Um, so. I did a lot of Google searches and the great thing is nowadays you can go, you know, Newcastle on a Saturday night or Manchester on a Saturday night. And I started seeing exactly the scenes that were, well, very similar scenes to the, what were in Enter Achilles. So there are certain things that don't go away, you know, blokes going out on Saturday night with a sex doll tucked under their arm and a inflatable sex doll, uh, blokes being drunk and, you know, having you know, uh, standoffs with one another, um, you know, what else? Suicide, men's suicide. Men's, you know, men are three times more likely to commit suicide. They're much more likely to be, 85% of home, homeless people are men. Um, you know, 70% homicide victims are men. So 
it seemed to me that there still was a very big issue around masculinity, which is at the core of what Interchilles is. And while there have been some things clearly that have moved men along, um, including the feminist movement, uh, more recently Me Too, to make men more conscious of their behaviour, um, I still feel that there is a lot that men can do uh, in terms of examining themselves. And interesting enough, just in the States, while there's been studies you know, on, on uh, women's studies and, and gender studies, only recently are there you know, masculinity studies starting to courses in, in that. And I think that as a result, that's a reflection of that uh, you know, the issue is pertinent and it's necessary to address. And I'm sure not only men, but a lot of women will, will you know, certainly feel the need for that. Probably more women feel the need for that than men. I think a lot of men go on until they reach a, a crisis. And uh, in a funny way, a bit like me with TV8, it's a certain point where I thought, you know, I can be a, a superhero, I can handle all this work level and I can run a company on a shoestring. And there's a certain point when you think, you know, what is the cost of that? It must be quite difficult, I guess, if you're making work on an original cast, original set of people, to then find dancers and performers to to remount a work like that, like you indicated that in Strange Fish. I was just wondering, how do you do that? How do you start finding people, or do you have I to move the work along as well? You do. You do have to adapt the work to a degree, and a lot of my work, probably my work, is different to traditional dance choreographers in in the sense that I'm looking at the people who are very interested in manipulating you know permutations and combinations of phrases and steps so that it's not necessarily about subject matter but it's more about uh, creativity in in phrase making so that's I mean of course I'm absolutely interested in how you generate interesting movement phrases but there's always it's my work is much closer to acting so there's always got to be an intention and you've got to find people one that are connected understand the connection between me, meaning and movement and a lot of dancers don't particularly if they're very highly trained in one particular style they're often a victim of moving in one particular way and they've lost their understanding of body language so they might be able to get their leg very high with a beautiful pointed foot or do multiple pirouettes but they don't necessarily understand uh, what most human beings actually understand when somebody walks towards them and their head's cocked a bit in an odd angle or there's tension in their body, most people will read that, you know, people will see somebody from a distance and often, you know, do something in their body or move across the street because they recognise something. It's incredible how many dancers cannot, when I ask them to sort of take a quality or to uh, express a sensation or, uh, yeah, a sensation or emotion that they're actually unable to do that. And the second thing is, because I'm interested in body language, invariably you start getting into personality. And um, so I have got to find people who do have strong personalities and uh, and come across as individuals on stage. I'm not interested in you know everybody in unison doing perfect arabesques in unitards looking the same. I remember a dancer from Netherlands Dance Theatre asking me to come and look at her in a performance with the idea that she might come and work with us. And I, <laughs> she sent me a photograph. And then when they all came on stage, all in their hair up and buns, in their, you know, unitards, I just couldn't pick her out from, you know, the other 25 women on stage. They all looked really similar. You won't have a problem when you come and see Enter Achilles. Um, so I feel 
that we've found very successful cast uh, to replace the original. And I'm really pleased with them. I think they've worked really hard. We did spend six months and we did look at 600 men and we did four auditions in the UK, two in Spain, one in Amsterdam and one in Australia. So we searched high and low. Um, but I think, yeah, I think we've got a very good team. I'm interested in what you said in terms of dance training, kind of, uh, forcing out or pushing out that idea of body language and how people read bodies. What is it about the discipline that should be all about communicating to people that then removes those things that we associate with emotion or reading people and bodies? Why, why does dance do that? Well, I think the thing about dance often, the structure of a dance class is that everybody, you know, if you go generally everybody should move the same so well not should but does so when you've got a ballet class you're getting everybody to have the same exact same type of mannerism with the fingers the lift of the of the elbow when they're doing port de bras uh the extended foot and pointed foot you're you're everybody is aspiring to an ideal and we know what that ideal is like we've seen sylvie guillem we know what a perfect arabesque looks like we know how high a leg can go you know, we've seen it in people. So everybody's aspiring to that. As a result, everybody starts working, looking very unison. There is a, a newer movement in schools, which is sort of against that. But unfortunately, it's often informed by release technique. And it's, it gets so internal and so um, lacking um, discipline uh, at times, you know, what they call somatic, which is such a general term. And that's in, for me, how the dancing ends up looking so generalized and so non-specific. Um, and while I've, I've said to people, I need you to be able to do an arabesque, but I'll never ask you probably to do one on stage. And I need people who can move in many different ways, who are not locked in one way and one practice. Um, and I felt like a lot of people who have gone to the schools have, uh, and there was a sort of moment uh, when Hoffesh, Schechter, um, Akram Khan and myself um, were very concerned about the dance training in the schools here. It was back in 2013. And we tried to have a dialogue with uh, particularly London Contemporary because that's where I'd come from. And I'd, gone, I'd been invited there by a teacher who was also deeply concerned about the standard of dancers that were coming out and that they weren't fit for work. I mean, in the sense that weren't ready, fit, ready for work. Um, and it created a sort of, you know, whole brouhaha. But uh, Robert Cohen at the time, well, who founded the company and is on the board, said to me that he'd been for 10 years, he'd been concerned about the standard. I'd also heard, well, not heard, Nadine Senior, who uh, founded Northern School of Contemporary Dance, had written to me and said that she heard of my concerns and also worried. And a lot of the other major choreographers had privately said they were concerned about not being able to get people from these schools because they weren't, they just weren't ready for work. Um, many of those choreographers didn't want to be named. And um, we tried to have conversations for 18 months with uh, London Contemporary, but they sort of, unfortunately, the management at that time played a lot of games and tried to you know, not respond, not engage. We had to try and meet with the chair. It all got sort of, you know, rather silly in terms of something that really could have been, you know, had they been open, we were, we were more than happy to work with them to try and find ways to 
employ their people because that's basically what wanted to do the three contemporary dance schools and it's not to say that there weren't good dancers being trained at the classical schools for people who were you know interested in doing choreography that was more um you know more balletic and uh, i know remember matthew Bourne saying that he was getting more dances from the musical dance music uh, schools than the conservatoires that the three conservatoires we were concerned about love and northern uh, the Nor uh, northern contemporary dance school and lower contemporary dance school so what's been great is since then that group of people running london contemporary have been so, well they're no longer there let's just put it that way um and i feel there's a you know a it was seven years ago, so there's a new, fresh wave of people. And I think that they have definitely addressed the concerns because people on the board were talking to me privately, saying they were very concerned about the standards. So things have moved on. Um, and I think there has been a sort of return a little bit more to ensuring that uh, release technique doesn't dominate. I'm not saying that it's not, it doesn't have its value, but that it doesn't dominate every form of you know, training at these schools or... or, or or isn't all uh, pervasive. Must be interesting looking back over your career and seeing what shifts have occurred, both I guess in training and people that are coming out of the schools, but in the industry more broadly. I imagine there's quite a lot of different waves and things that have occurred. Are there things that you look at now and you think, wow, that would have never happened, or that's changed a lot, or for better or for worse? Um. I'm not sure about, look, for me, it's always great to have people who come and work with me who have, you know, skills in multiple different areas. You know, I've worked with people who've trained in Bharatanatyam. I've worked with people who've trained in Cordelis work. Um, if someone is, you know, also got, you know, breakdance skills, that's all, that could be, you know, of benefit to our work process. For me, it's as, you know, as, uh, as many skills as you can bring to the project, uh, it makes you more versatile. We had a wonderful performer called Ara um, Siobhan, who was great because he'd, you know, he'd you know, been inspired by Michael Jackson and he then gone to London Contemporary and he was brilliant at text um, and was a great actor. So when you've got someone like that, you're... You have someone very rich in front of you, Hannes Lane Goff, um, also uh, who's been with me for the last sort of 11, 12 years and as uh, the creative associate on, on Intro Achilles, uh, you know, started off in lyrical jazz um, in a small German town. Uh, and he just, you know, he's very, he's very rich in many different uh, dance techniques. So for me, that is great because that shows a, a, a he has a versatility that I need because when I'm making a work, I need to say, if I need to say something, I'll use whatever means necessary. Yes, I have a penchant for uh, movement, but if I can't say it in movement, then I need to be able to say it in song or, you know, circus tricks or, or not necessarily tricks, you know, skills, acrobatic skills, whatever, whatever means is available to me. Um, and sometimes I feel that the model, the old model of the repertory company, whereby dancers would often you know, go in and work for a few, you know, quite a few years in a rep company experiencing different choreographers. That doesn't happen as much now. It feels that a, certainly in the, I'm talking about the contemporary world. I think there's another model with the balletic world. So what often happens is now people go in and they work with somebody for a while that is of a style 
And so what I've sometimes found is that it people are a bit slower to adapt or imitate if they haven't had that repertory exposure because we had to you know change our style in the morning then in the afternoon a different crop would come in and you would really have to reconfigure ahead so while we might not have been some of us might not have been as good technically or, or proficient in one style we were very you know good across the, the board and sometimes I miss that the speed that people can pick up a style and imitate something and then of course in the end try and make it their own and that's a gross generalization look there's you know there's lots of you know I can think of already lots of exceptions to that but uh, certainly I found for myself having done the rep company really beneficial and and very enriching for me as a choreographer in the end because I got exposed to I think by the time I started making my own work I'd worked with over 30 different choreographers and that was a good foundation rather than what often happens now you see somebody that's talented and the first minute they leave school they form their own company and sometimes I think you know, maybe they miss out on part of their education that could be, could make them richer in the long run. Yeah. I'm also thinking in terms of how the arts industry, uh, to use that terminology, has shifted and changed as well. I think um, obviously companies come and go and what have you, but the arts world at the moment, funding, uh, publicity or even like reviews, arts journalism, seems to be a whole lot of shifts around the place that art has um, in society. Arts council kind of objectives, uh, a lot of box ticking. Uh, Yeah, I just wonder if that whole infrastructure has changed somewhat as well. Look, I think it's very easy to get caught up, I think, into box ticking. And I remember the Arts Council having different priorities every two years they'd change. You know, sometimes it was uh, it was specifically racial diversity or it could have been disability or it could have been age or it could have been accessibility. And for me, what felt really important all the time was just to do good work. Um, so yes, we heard what the Arts Council said, but we did not become, you know, we didn't, we weren't held ransom to it. And it felt important just to make good work and for me to pursue the things that interested me. Um, and that, you know, that approach worked well for us. I didn't feel that we were, you know, ever penalised for not adhering strictly to sort of, you know, the, the sort of tick box category of that you know, two-year, four-year funding period. And I would encourage most artists to pursue, you know, things that they feel passionate about over getting too caught up in um, what they, you know, what they think is the sort of um, funder's uh, interest at the time. My, my, I remember once somebody approached me to run a company. Uh, I'd, you know, I'd been in that company and they asked me, come in for a meeting and they went well we've done audience surveys and they said they would like work like yours so we and particularly this work and this work and we would like you to run the company you know doing work like this and I went the minute you ask me to do that you're dead I don't I've got to keep being fresh I will make work that will change and I need to be able to make work change that changes and the minute you want to try and put me into a box that's when you know it won't be interesting work anymore um, and I could have stuck with the early DV8 
days, you know, when men were just, you know, there were men, you know, flinging ourselves combatively. You know, of course, it was underlined with politics uh, in the late 80s. Uh, and then I decided to make more poetic work because I was tired of that by come 1990 and I worked with Wendy Houston who became the sort of sort of principal performer in the company for a few productions and the work became more poetic and I needed to do that and then come about 2007 I felt I'd pushed and shoved movement as much as I could in terms of you know experimenting and I needed to do something else. And I started investigating language and mixing movement and language. And what was really great is that reinvigorated my interest in movement when you start doing verbatim work alongside um, movement. And I felt really no one else was investigating that to the degree that we were. And now I'm, you know, I'm interested in going back and re-looking at End Achilles, and we have brought some text into it. Um, however, I'm still, I feel there's some really pertinent issues, social issues, which also, um, not only realising that, you know, many of the themes still carry on 25 years later, masculinity is not going to disappear in the next, you know, 100 years. Um, and uh, for me, it's trying to bring in some of the social issues to do with you know, and they're just whispers of now within this piece, but the Me Too movement, uh, the issues about masculinity that are currently being discussed in, in light of that. The, in 2019, the American Psychological Association uh, came out with guidelines for its counsellors uh, with regards to uh, trying to um, mitigate what they call, and this is inverted brackets, traditional masculinity, because they saw many of the ideals, masculine ideals, as being counterproductive to men's emotional growth and health. And that, that's clearly not all masculine sort of ideals, but certainly they felt that a lot of men were suffering and causing harm to themselves and or others trying to aspire to those, those superhuman um, uh, ideals. In fact, there's a great quote um, from, do you know Brené Brown? at all um let me see if let me see if i can uh find it it's um it's yeah it's um, we'll keep talking and I'll, I'll see if i can find it on my computer somewhere it's, um, yeah it's interesting that so much of your work does have a theme or underlining exploration of men masculinity sexuality is there is there a reason that uh, this theme kind of keeps reoccurring or yeah I guess what's your passion around that or the exploration well I think I've explored a lot of different things uh, you know just for show was about the surface of 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 things and how I feel that sometimes what, what's that expression is some people feel it's better to look good than be good um, you know if only was sort of this sort of notion, you know, of believing in, in, is it better to believe in something than nothing? Um, religion has always been uh, in, in a number of my works because I'm not a great fan of religion. I've seen it be very oppressive to uh, women and gay people. Uh, at the same time, I also acknowledge that my partner's family, who um, he's uncles and aunts, he had two Carmelite nuns and a, and a priest amongst his aunts and uncles and some of his brothers and sisters still remain uh, you know, practicing Catholics. 
So I realized for some of them, it's been helpful, uh, but it's also been complicated. And therefore, religion has been a you know, huge running issue throughout my work. For me, really, the work I make is to somehow resolve the conflicts I observe in, uh, in society. Um, I made a work called Can We Talk About This, which was about Islam and freedom of speech, because I would find that many of my left-wing friends, and I am from the left, but uh, I, I probably now neither identify left nor right, because I feel that the left has failed to protect um, some of the very basic sort of tenets of what I consider to, you know, of, of, um, of human rights. Sometimes they've put religious rights or cultural rights before human rights. And for me, you know, human rights should always trump, um, you know, religious or cultural rights. There should be, I don't believe in cultural relativism. I believe in universality. Um, and I remember going to the Houses of Parliament to hear uh, there was a discussion about, um, uh, actually, it was probably about cultural relativism, really. And there was a pediatrician who talked about how she would often be told that she had to respect certain cultural customs because, ex because exactly they were that. And she said, no, what I have to do is I have to protect the child. So if a child is covered in black cloth because that is the cultural uh, norm and gets rickets because of you know lack of sunlight, then I need to object to that. If some child is going to lose their clitoris, um, I will object to that. There's nothing I can respect in this cultural practice. And that thing about putting universality and the welfare of that individual above cultural and religious beliefs. Um, Sorry, just going back to the to that quote when we were just talking about masculinity from Brené Brown. It's from a book called Daring Greatly. Um, Brené Brown did a lot of investigation on, you know, interviewed women and, and finally men started saying, well, if you really want to understand the issues women have and women have with men, then why don't you start interviewing men? Anyway, this man, uh, this is the quote from her book and it reads, he pointed towards the back of the room where his wife was standing and said, my wife and daughters, the one you signed all those books for, they'd rather see me die on top of my white horse than watch me fall off. You say you want us to be vulnerable and real, but come on, you can't stand it. It makes you sick to see us like that, unquote. So I think there, you know, there's some very complex issues about masculinity. And while sometimes people throw the term toxic masculinity around very easily, I'm not sure if you heard recently about the Islamist terrorist on London Bridge, uh, Usman Khan, where two guys waylaid him until the police came and one had a narwhal tusk that he'd ripped off a wall and the other one had a fire extinguisher. These were men. All the people who came to you know, um, prevent this guy doing any more damage or stabbing or killing any more people were men. Um, they weren't women. And... It's not to say that women could not do that, but it, were, it was the men who came forward. Now, if that's toxic masculinity, then I'm fine with a bit of that. But of course, I do understand what the term means. And there are lots of issues. And the fact that men perpetrate so much violence is not good for society, nor for them. So I would hope that you know, doing Andrew Kelly's, uh, you know, it's a time, it's, it's, it's an interesting time. And I think in light of also with Brexit, it has reawoken the class divide in Britain. It has, you know, attended some of the marches 
you know, in, in terms of research for this piece and to be amongst a Tommy Robinson uh, protest march of 10,000 men and looking at the men and realizing many of them are very similar to the ones that I have on stage, but in the same breath. And, you know, I am somebody from a working class background. My father was a mechanic in the Air Force. He then became a coal miner. I have huge, you know, identification with the working classes. And this is not a simple combination of the working classes or of, of, of masculinity. And, you know, the flip side, of course, is that we've got a prime minister we've just elected who has referred to women as hot totties, referred to the opposition leader as a big girl's blouse and someone that needed to man up and referred to uh, gay men as bum boys and crop tops. So the notion of masculinity isn't refined or, or, or restricted, I should say, to uh, working class blokes in pubs. Nonetheless, that is where my piece is set. It's so interesting because these conversations and issues are so nuanced and so uh, there's so much depth there. To explore them in physical theatre dance is also for me really interesting. I guess, why is that mode such a good one for exploring these issues? I am not, not. I know it's not the only mode, but in terms of, yeah, I don't even know what that question is. I, just... I think one of the things that I observe as a gay man and, you know, just been just this morning when I was reading some tweets, um, uh, there was a gay man who sort of said, every time I, you know, show physical affection to my partner in public, I always have to surveil the situation to make sure that it's safe. Um, and as a gay man, I think that I am constant, and, and I quite like the idea that I have to be aware of certain things that other people will not be aware of, or they will take for granted. Um, and, and I like the fact that I'm forced to reassess situations from a sort of, um, you know, not a quote unquote normal situation. What I often admire and enjoy is watching the camaraderie, camaraderie, the physical contact between blokes um, and the ease with which they you know, um, communicate with one another. And I also observe how that can quick, very quickly change. When I was, uh, this whole work enter Achilles was a result of my own Achilles um, snapping and 3H. Three NHS hospitals failing to diagnose it properly, and then finally it was operated on. It got a cross hospital infection, and there was a hole in the back of my leg for about a year. But what was interesting was the people that came to visit me in hospital while I was recovering from this infection were primarily my female friends. The male, my male friends, you know, would pop in once, say over six weeks. But it was about doing things with them. They, our relationship was about the physicality of you know going out and doing things together. Uh, they didn't have that emotional. Um, I don't want to say intelligence, but just sort of that emotional uh, vocabulary to deal with uh, things in the same way my female friends did, which is what instigated this whole piece. Um, so for me, I think what's great about going back to your question, the physicality that I see in men. Oh, sorry, I was about to say, when I was in the, so when finally when I realized that my foot was infected because there was all this pus running out of the plaster on my leg, I went to the accident and A&E and two blokes had come in and they were, they were best friends, but they 
been in an argument, it had escalated, and the other one had glassed the other guy in the face. Now, here I was with, what is it about two friends that can be best buddies and then end up sticking a glass in the other person's face? And just, just a statistic, there are 80,000 glassing instances. That doesn't mean they're all violent, but out of those, probably 5,000 have significant uh, physical damage, cause physical damage to a person. That's about 100 blokes a week in the UK that have irreparable damage as a result of you know, some type of glass attack. That's very significant. Um, so for me, you know, we do have pint glasses in this piece. We do have that huge physicality. If you go to a football match, you watch, you watch how the blokes move. Uh, go to a Tommy Robinson march or go to a pro. When I was, you know, we, we sent a um, videographer up to the north of England. I couldn't make one of the marches and he videoed blokes. And sometimes it's also just the look that you get from these blokes. At one point, he, he was an ex-war veteran, this guy who was videoing, and he felt very nervous. I asked him to go into pubs and he went, he, he said, look, I just going to a pub with a camera is just too too frightening for him. And this is an ex-war vet. So there is some fantastic, you know, that, that just the look, the power of a look can be incredible. So for me, it's, uh, you know, blokes in pubs, and I'm sure you've ever been in a pub when there's a football match on, it is hugely physical. Um, also about contact, you know, going back to contact dance. Um, how men can touch one another. You can't be too delicate. It's about the quality of the touch. And of course, that lends itself to contact duets. So that, and you know, rather than just do an abstract contact duet, because it's a good quote, unquote, blow man, as one of my, you know, uh, improv release teachers used to say, uh, if you actually have an intention with it, you can actually add meaning to it very, very easily. Um, and I think in light of the whole contact between men, what is acceptable contact between men and women? Uh, so it brings up all sorts of physical images. Uh, when can you hold another man's hand? As a result, we, we've got a quarter lease, you know, which is basically a duet, rope duet high up in the air. It's fine to hold another man's hand if, if it stops you from falling to the ground and breaking your legs. But when you're standing on the ground holding that hand, it's another story. So it feels like for me, there's a massive amount of physicality. Um, you know, magazines that now, you know, like Men's Health that have perfect bodies, the whole issue about steroids and, you know, big chests, um, the whole pressure, pressure that women have felt for a very long time through men, women's magazines are now being sort of peddled, uh, you know, on, um, you know, through the media. So I think it's, um, I think it's a perfect uh, medium to explore issues around masculinity and to question things about masculinity. I'm wondering if you're looking back at your work, are there aspects that you think people miss or that they don't see or that you wish people would, would see another aspect or another part of your work or your canon? Well, I think what sometimes happens is that people come to my work and rather than look at the, the you know, how it is made choreographically, um, you know, how I've moved somebody to a certain place, what are the details of the gesture. Sometimes they get caught up in actually the content of what I'm saying. So the reaction is, 
Oh, I totally disagree with that. I mean, it was great when we did Can We Talk About This because it was verbatim and because the words were from people who had first-hand lived experiences of the issues of living, you know, many of them um, were either progressive Muslims or ex-Muslims whose lives have been threatened because they dare either leave the religion or um, condemn the religion because it's misogyny or, homophobi or, or homophobia. Um, or, you know, it said something that was deemed to be blasphemous. They, their lives have been threatened. Uh, and a lot of people responded to that work in all sorts of different ways. Like, you know, it was so diverse, I, I, I can't even begin to explain how people can come and see the same work and have so many different perspectives. And most of the time I feel they're bringing something more about themselves than what was on stage. But I'm always intrigued when people don't actually look at how I have manipulated a group or or choreograph these fine details, but just respond to the subject matter and like, oh, I like that, or I hate that, or dismiss it in one go. And sometimes I wonder if I had just put on some nice music and I had people weren't talking or you didn't know what the subject matter was and I abstracted it, they would then engage and they would then see all the sort of subtle patternings and uh, choreographic movements. But I think, nonetheless, I always feel like you want to play to the highest level and you want to assume that everybody in your... You want to play to, yeah, to the, to the smartest level. So I do what I do and I spend a huge amount of time looking at subtle movements as we do when we're looking at the text and how we deliver the text. And we, you know, we've spent a huge amount of energy over the last sort of from 2007 to 2015 doing text analysis, getting dancers to be as precise with the text as they are with the movement. And for me, that's great. That, that feels like um, we, we know that that detail's in there. I think a lot of people who uh, have got a good eye and a good head also see that as well. Um, but yeah, sometimes I have to sort of say to people if they come up to me and they want to you know, sort of say whether they liked it or they didn't like it. And I'm not generally that interested really. I you know, make the work for, from my perspective, for me, I'm not really that concerned, which is why for decades I didn't read reviews. Um, but if, if they want to come, sometimes they just say, well, what do you think about you know, the movement construction? Um, just to sort of make them think about something different other than just, you know, do I agree with that subject matter or not? That's an interesting thing too, because art should in its very best be challenging and that doesn't necessarily always mean that you're going to find it you know, entertaining or safe or light or nice. And I think sometimes uh, people ignore the power of something that challenges them or they find uncomfortable or sit there and challenging. Yeah, I don't know. It's something about art being safe or all of a sudden becoming a safe space. I think it's really interesting at the moment. Well, I used to say for a long time that I thought that dance was the Prozac of the art forms. And I think there is a problem because we train in such a regimented way and because there is an aesthetic that dominates our work, that often complex or ugly or difficult issues um, are glossed over because people are pointing their feet and, and look very lovely as, you know, as, you know the, the concept of you know, contemporary dance being lovely bodies doing lovely things to lovely tunes in lovely costumes. And there's a lot of that. Um, so I wish that I would see more dance or movement. I don't even really like the word dance because I prefer the word movement because I feel like dance is a subset of that and I want to be able to use any type of movement 
Um, I remember years ago when Pina Bausch first brought her work to London and probably about a third of the audience walked out and some muttering, this isn't dance. And for me, it was all dance. Every movement, every gesture can be dance just because it wasn't on a regular beat to a regular tune doesn't mean it's not dance. But I do feel that there is a lack of tough, hard, provocative, thought-provoking work in the dance world. I think there is a lot of work that is... Um, it's part of the reason I left Extemporary Dance Theatre in the end is that I felt we were conning the audiences. I would see what was written in the programme. I would see what the critics wrote. And they were the days when I was, when I was dancing with Extemporary, when I would read reviews. And um, it was there was so much BS going on, honestly, in the programme notes. And it was a bit like a Rorschach. Watching, you know, listening to critics talk about a work was a bit like a Rorschach inkblot sort of test where people would project whatever they wanted on. You know, here I was, the dancer in the rehearsal room. I knew what, what the choreographer's intention or lack of intention might have been, whether they were just really interested in just manipulating and, and they were fascinated by movement and dynamics. And that would have been fine if that was in the programme. You know, I'm really interested in, in, in manipulating movement and creating the most original movement I can make. That would have been honest. But then to sort of say, you know, that it was about, you know, neuroscience or... Um, you know, the death of, you know, the death of my mother or something else. And you go, whoa, where did that come from? Or, you know, yet again, another sort of thing about space, time, construction, uh, the perception of, um, of, of the human, you know, the human body through, um, you know, ridiculous. I can't even find the words to talk about the absurd, you know, the obfuscation and, um, rubbish it's a bit like Sokol do you remember do you know the story about Sokol who was a scientist a neuroscientist and wrote basically used a lot of jargon and wrote uh, an article and published it and it was published in a number of respected articles then he called it out and said it was complete nonsense uh, I feel I feel that happens a lot in our world and I just wish people would be a bit more honest about what they're making rather than trying to pretend it's something else because fundamentally I feel that's dishonest to the public um, and what I would like to say is, and what I'd like to feel I do, and I'm not saying all my work is, you know, wonderful and there's, you know, I've made a couple of real bummers in my life, but at least whatever's on the tin, you know, you find what's in the, what's in the tin is written on the outside of the tin. And I feel that uh, I want very much to make unpretentious work. And at the same time, I want to try and make it complex. And, and that is a struggle. That is a particularly in movement because... We, most, most people use language a lot to express themselves. We're doing this interview in words. We're not doing it in movement. If I was doing it in movement, you'd get a sense of maybe what I was trying to communicate. But it's a very hard thing to communicate, communicate complex, really complex issues in movement alone, which is in the end why I did, you know, for the last, probably last decade of my life, you know, get involved in, in words and why there are some more words uh, in this version of Andrew Kelly's, not too many because I think the work stands without that. But yeah, I had to I had to resort to using some more words than the original production. And um, finally, I guess you're revisiting enters entering Achilles and you're touring that. Are there other works or other projects on the horizon, or is this the one that's consuming you for the for the next period of time? Well, for me, one of the things that I said earlier was it was really important for me to um, reclaim my life <laughs> and, I'm, and I've really enjoyed doing that and uh, 
also when you're running a company making work you're fighting all the time you're fighting for exactness you're fighting to make sure that the set will arrive you're making sure that the dancers are you know at a point where they're ready to perform the work and i'm really enjoying you know in my early 60s to um chill out a bit and uh, and look at the beauty around me and not always fight somebody else has asked me you know in, over the years i've been asked by a lot of companies to make work and invariably only ron bear allowed me to go out off an audition and find dancers that were not in their permanent company because of the specificity of this of the type of work i make so they're the first people who said okay we will give, you can find your own dancers and we will give you the time they've given me four months to rework this work which is just no other company will do that the australian ballet takes what five and a half six weeks to make a full-length work but for me if you're doing movement research and investigation you're trying to find new ways to say things you do need time you do need that time very few people will be able to offer me that so i probably could rest for feel feel assured that uh, not many people will be able to offer me the conditions I need to uh, go back into the studio. Um, but the great thing is not having to, at the same time of making a work, not having to do all the other things to do with running a company, to do with funding and sponsors and uh, having to even clean studios and uh, do applications and be human, you know, the human HR department. The great thing is doing a work for another company, they can take care of all that. So I think probably I won't make much more work. That must be so liberating creatively as well, not to have to hold all the, that space for other things in yeah. running a company. It is. And also, to be very honest, I don't think I'll make a, a, a work from scratch ever again. I've, I'm, I'm done with that dark space where you've got to make something out of nothing um and the fear that's associated with that and the struggle and you know like i did that for four decades in total and uh, it's time now to um to yeah have some fun um and i feel a bit guilty even saying that but uh yeah not to feel i've got to hold 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 this huge company above my head my, my arms no longer want to do that i don't want to do other things so, um, yeah, so I'm not sure whether or not I will, um, you know, somebody else will come to me. And I'm, I'm interested, I mean, I have found it interesting to revisit the work and sort of re-envisage it and think, okay, how can we modernise it? How can we make sure it's not dusty? Um, and we've changed the costumes. You know, mobile phones weren't really that common when we made this piece. Smoking in pubs, you're allowed to do. All those things have changed. Uh, as I say, certain social issues have changed. So it's been interesting giving the work, you know, subtle inflections. Um, yeah, so who knows? But I certainly know that I, 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 want, I want a life outside of dance. Thanks for listening. Enter Achilles is touring internationally during 2020. You can find a list of episode notes on the website delvingintodance.com as well as a range of other episodes, including with Paul White, Meryl Tankard, Damien Gillet, Juliette Burnett, Dan Dorr, Raphael Bonicella, Judith Mackerel, and so many more. Online, you can also find a whole range of written accounts about dance, including a new partnership with Critical Path. Delving into dance is supported by the Victorian government through Creative Victoria and through the Australian government through Australia Council, its arts funding and advisory body. Until next time, take care.